Welcome to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast, brought to you by Flowpath. I'm your host, Griffin Hamilton. This is the show where I interview industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights into modern day facilities management. From hospitality to commercial real estate and everything in between, we'll learn what it really takes to succeed as a facilities manager. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast. Today, I am pleased to have Perry Shimanoff, MC2, the president of MC2. Perry, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Griffin, and thanks for inviting me. This is my favorite topic. After being involved in this business for 45 years, I might be able to share a couple things that your audience will appreciate. You know, that was the, the point of, of having you on here. I know uh, we, we met at a conference uh, earlier this year, uh, which is kind of hard to believe, and uh, we've stayed in touch, and I, I'm pleased that we have. And I know your expertise in the space is going to be something that our audience is going to uh, have a lot of takeaways from today. But before we uh, get into the the meat of the conversation, why don't you tell the audience a little bit of uh, about your background and who the heck Perry is? So I won't start with kindergarten because I went to three of them. <laughs> um, I actually attended UCLA and graduated in 1970 and accepted a commission in the Marine Corps for three years. I was an infantry officer and I even served in Vietnam in 1972. After that, I went to work for Electronic Data Systems out of Dallas, Ross Perot, and many folks are familiar with him since he actually ran for president. Um, and I was with EDS for three years and then I went to work for Blue Cross as an industrial engineer and made that for three years. And then in 1979, I went out on my own. And this marks the beginning of my 45th year. And I specialize in in maintenance and operations management, focusing primarily in the education market, K-12s, charter schools, community colleges, universities. And I've also done some work with airports, churches, and counties, but K-12 is really my area of expertise. And in 1982, I uh, formed a partnership with Bruce Robertson. We've been partners now for 42 years. And the first thing we did as partners is we wrote a maintenance management work order system on an Osborne portable computer, which only weighed 34 pounds back then. And the screen was, I think, three by three amber screen. Anyway, we still have customers, even though we've upgraded our system. Uh, but we also recognize that we're not keeping up with the technology, and that's kind of how you and I met. So, um, you know, I'm not here to do a sales pitch, but what you guys have is comparable and even better than what we have. And so uh, I hope folks that are interested will spend some time learning more about your system. Well, I appreciate that, and I will say we had a, a bit of an advantage as uh, I think over the last 40 years, there's been a, a few advancements in technology. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I give you props there on uh, beginning that. Now, I'm just, I'm curious, what was the, what, what sparked the idea for you guys to create your own system? So I was working with a school district. It was Novato Unified. And the way they handled work orders for maintenance was a five-part form. And most of the time was spent handling the paper. Who gets which copy? How do we file it? Should we throw it away? And then nobody ever did any reporting. And we just went, you know, with computers, boy, we could probably cut down the number of steps to request, complete, and report on a job from 35 to 40 steps to like five. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we did. 
And our first customer in 1984 was the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. The irony is it was even hard then to get personal computers. In fact, our first customer tried to install it on a display right device, so you can imagine what it was like. Uh, but by the time uh, we hit the 90s, we had about 150 school districts, mostly in California. But we also had customers in uh, Texas, Oklahoma, New Hampshire, New Jersey. And um, why am I leaving out one state? I'll think of it later. Um, and it, it was interesting to us that it was taking so long for public entities to take advantage of computers. I mean, the computer is a tool. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now everybody has something in place. Uh, you, you just don't find anybody without. But some of the problems that existed 30 years ago still ex- exist today. Um, and so, uh, you know, our, our whole concept was preventive maintenance. Do the things to prevent things from breaking down. And, and part of the resistance is a lot of customers don't see preventive maintenance taking place. Mm-hmm. What they see is when something breaks down. And then, of course, oh, look, the maintenance guy came out to fix the toilet. Well, you know, if we would have cleaned it properly and not stuffed down paper towels, that would not have happened. Um, the second thing I found is people would say, well, we don't have enough people to do preventive maintenance because we're doing all of this breakdown stuff. Well, maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and it's interesting. We still have a couple customers that actually started with us in the 80s. And they have some of the best preventive maintenance programs I've ever seen. They recognize the value of it, and they're able to quantify what they're doing to show by, you know, for example, we're extending the life of our chillers by five years. Okay. Our carpets are lasting longer because we're steam extracting three times a year instead of once a year. So it's always nice to have customers like that. Uh, We also recognize, and you probably as well, your system does a lot of stuff, but most people don't take advantage of all the features. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we're going to use it as a tracking system. I ask customers, well, you know, if there's a vandalism case and you've caught the culprit, aren't you charging them for labor and materials? Oh, we don't track that. Why not? <laughs> right. And, and I think one of the issues gets back to how do you quantify what maintenance does? Well, it's one thing to talk about the number of work orders, but to me that doesn't mean squat. How about how many hours of work you've invested at different schools on different systems? How have you extended the life of those systems? How have you reduced the labor costs for breakdowns? Uh, how is the customer's health? The buildings aren't breaking down. The air conditioning's working properly. Uh, the MERV filters are in properly. Bingo. Fewer people are getting sick. And so one of the things I try to do with customers is say, let's quantify what you're doing so there's a way to describe it. And and the other issue is staffing. How many people do we need to maintain a building? Well, if we can quantify and estimate our jobs based on industry standards like the Chilton Manual and others, we can then say, well, here's our backlog. And if we added another plumber, we'd be able to service in three days instead of eight. Anyway, you can tell I get excited about this. And, uh, and that's, I mean, that's why you're on here, right? It's, it's your passion <laughs> about about what we, what we do. And uh, your career is fascinating because you saw the opportunity 40 years ago uh, to be more efficient. And you nailed it where there's still public entities that they have manual processes in place or they kind of lean on that crutch of not having the, the bandwidth or uh, the number of, of technicians to actually do PMs and be proactive. And, 
it could be frustrating, uh, extremely frustrating at times where you hear that and it's, uh, you, you have to understand where they're coming from, where it's easier as an outsider to say that, but from your perspective, being able to show, hey, here's the data and here's the actual value of having a PM program in place and being proactive. I think that's just where there's a lot of faith in the numbers and the metrics and the data to go forth and actually deploy a PM strategy. Well, and, you know, manufacturers have endorsed preventive maintenance ever since probably 1910. I mean, they sold the value. Yeah, the Ford factory. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. Um, You know, the other thing I try to do with customers is say to them, why do we maintain our buildings? And I hear four or five responses, the same ones. Oh, we do it for health. We do it for safety. We do it for appearance. Um, We do it because uh, the community expects it. And we're getting paid. And I go, yes. But do you realize that you are teaching good citizenship, that you attract better quality personnel, whether it's teachers or staff, based on the appearance of your facilities? Students learn better in a clean environment, just like employees are more productive in a clean facility. There's the legal reasons. And the other thing I point out is these are our future leaders. Mm -hmm. And if they're in a clean, healthy, safe classroom where they can learn, they'll make sure we get our share of the pie when they become decision makers. And then the other thing, of course, is is what I call the pride element. Um, I love it when I see maintenance and custodians and grounds people wearing uniforms, not just have their name on it, but maybe even a certification. Hey, this person's a carpet certified. This person's a plumber with 12 years of experience. Um, And I took that from the military. I thought that recognition was very, very effective and powerful. Hey listeners, real quick. This is Alex Cummings, CEO of Flowpath, an industry-leading CMMS designed and built by operators to fit the scale of any organization. I'm excited to share with you that Flowpath now offers a tier for teams that just need core CMMS functionality on simple monthly contracts and at a price that makes sense. We call it Flowpath Core, and it runs on the same powerful Flowpath software that thousands of professionals rely on every day. So come check us out at getflowpath.com and see just how easy it is to get started with a software designed to fit your needs. Oh, and mention this ad and you'll get 10% off your core subscription. Okay, enough from me. Back to the show. Absolutely. And on that point, as far as the certifications and the training, you're the guy to talk to about this because I saw, I mean, this number might be old where you might be pushing upwards of 20,000 custodians now. Uh, They've trained nationally. And talking to that on what you do exactly on the training part, but also some what you've seen still to this day as far as big gaps in existing training methods or what people are doing at school districts where maybe someone could have a, a solid first takeaway here. Well, I think part of the issue is people see journey workers like plumbers and electricians and glaziers at a higher a knowledge level than custodians. And that, of course, can create issues when the job description says to the custodian, you do minor maintenance. Well, what is minor maintenance? And if you don't define it, that can become a union issue. Um, Actually, I've hit 23,000 custodians that I've actually trained over the past 45 years. And in the past 10 years, I'm one of six certified master custodial trainers for the International Sanitary Supply Association. So I teach their classes. Uh, I also do it at a homeless shelter. And so uh, 
and 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 what's happened is two things. One, the custodians feel more confident in their ability to provide quality services, and many organizations then give them pay raises for getting certified. And to me, you know, those are two great motivators for doing that. Um, other big thing affecting maintenance and custodians are changes in technology. Most maintenance guys now walk around with a tablet or a cell phone, and they're using that as a way to you know do work orders to communicate with one another, uh, which really changes response times for whether it's an emergency or even preventive maintenance. Custodians, same thing. If there's, um, let's say, a toilet gets plugged in a student restroom, and this happened at Arcadia High School, the student can scan a barcode, and it'll send a message to the head custodian, there's a problem in the restroom. That used to never happen, and sometimes that restroom wouldn't get service for two or three days. Mm-hmm. One other little story. Um, Facebook's corporate headquarters is in Menlo Park. Large building. It's got to be two million square feet. They had over a thousand trash receptacles scattered throughout the inside of the building. You can imagine the custodial force just to go service all those. And how about the plastic bags? And mm-hmm. how about the odor issues, right? What they decided to do is to test IoT, the Internet of Things. And they installed these little, you know, monitors in the trash cans that would tell the custodial department when it was time to service the waste can based on how filled it got. They went to 75 from 1,000. Wow. Okay. And so we're now beginning to see IoT with cleaning equipment, maintenance equipment, vehicles, as a way to help monitor, which really helps preventive maintenance. Hey, it's time to change the oil. And it used to be, oh, you got to take your dipstick and put it down. No, not anymore. Um, and so part of my goal as a maintenance and operations consultant is to help serve as a conduit to introduce this new technology, not to replace anybody, to be another tool that we have in order to do our job. Mm-hmm. Um you, you, you know, mentioned one of the, earlier, yeah, yeah. Oh, Perry, on that note, sure. when you talk about replacing, because that, that could be a fear that people have. And I think it's important to call out uh, the previous uh, comment you made as far as not having headcount to do preventative maintenance. There is zero fear or there should be zero fear in getting replaced because we're short staffed as an industry and have been for years. And to the point where a crucial part of facilities management and any maintenance management program is being proactive and having that PM program in place. So the fact that we don't have and many organizations, a PM place because we don't have the headcount to tell you enough where you shouldn't be scared of technology replacing you. There's going to be a well, need there. You know, I think something else, and I don't, I'm not going to mention this uh, for your college that's in the, the Fre- Fresno area, but I helped them set up a preventive maintenance program. And the first thing we did was inventory all the equipment we wanted in the system. They didn't even know they had some of this equipment. Seriously. And then the second thing we did is we had to find service managers say, okay, what's the recommended 30-day service, 90, six months annual? What is the staffing that it takes to do that, which would allow us to quantify the PM component? And, and, and again, it's numbers. Hey, look, you, we're using industry standards. In order to do preventive maintenance, it's going to take X number of hours of labor to do that. But that's also going to reduce the breakdowns and of course, once we get history, we can show what that is. But if you don't document that, again, PM, you know, it sounds great, 
uh, <coughs> I call it uh, postponed maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, unfortunately kind of the, the way it's turned out uh, recently, it seems. But you're talking through not just you know automating those PM tasks, but taking it to that next level of you know predictive maintenance. Oh, abso- you know, absolutely. Using, using those IoT sensors and and just embracing technology here. So we've gone well, from what you know 40 years ago creating that PM plan to now you have these sensors that, to your point, they reduced uh, the receptacles from <clears> 1,000 to 75. I mean that is 95 well, percent reduction there. Yeah, I think we'll see more artificial intelligence to assist us. There now are autonomous cleaning machines. I mean, these things will clean warehouses once they figure out the map and then alert you, hey, I'm done. Oh, by the way, you need to empty my, my collector. Oh, and my brush needs to be, uh, you know, exchanged because I now have three hours of, you know, high intensity use. Even with custodians, that vacuum, I say part of vacuuming is to maintain your vacuum because if you don't, you're not going to be able to vacuum. And, and it's, it doesn't take much time to do it if it becomes part of your routine. Mm-hmm. You know, wipe down the exterior, empty the bag, check the hose, make sure the 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 extension cord, if you still have one, isn't, uh, you know, exposed. Uh, and that's the other gigantic change I'm seeing. It. We're going to battery-operated equipment on the cleaning side. No more extension cords. Those are trip hazards and just slow everybody down. But again, it's taking... Well, gee, it costs more. Yep, it does. But if we do a return on investment, you'll see if you get a vacuum that has a battery instead of an extension cord, it takes three weeks to repla- to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And the next 47 weeks, you're making out. Right. And your custodians are doing a better job. It's safer. And here's the thing. Well, we're more productive. They're going to give us more to do. No, they're not. <laughs> Is that a big not. is that a big piece of your training? I mean, you're talking twenty some odd thousand people over the years uh, that have gone through your training courses. Is that something where it's a lot of teaching the process and perhaps changing the mentality, uh, if you will, of going from you know just do this to here's the why we're doing these tasks. You know, and again, I I don't want to condemn anybody, but often the people that do the least amount of work, put up the most resistance. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> or they go, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. You know, one of the big changes in cleaning, it's been around for 20 years, is called team or task cleaning. And that's where custodians don't do a, are not responsible for cleaning an entire area, you know, classrooms, restrooms, hallways, offices, etc. But they have specific tasks they do in a building or multiple buildings. Trash management, floor care, restroom cleaning. Um, the productivity standards show that if you adopt that and people get along with each other, you can do three times as much versus the other way. But not everybody gets along. Some folks like to work alone. People work at different paces. Um, So, again, I try to be a conduit and I go, look, it doesn't work everywhere, but do a pilot, quantify before and after and see how it turns out. You know, when COVID hit, suddenly M&O folks became first responders. They've always been the first responders. But mm-hmm. suddenly they got attention and they also got some money. Um, and I just hope folks remember they're just as important as, as any staff member, any teacher, any professor, any administrator. Because without them, they can't 
experience the health, the safety, uh, you know, the appearance, the conducive facilities to teaching. Absolutely. And I mean, there's, there's data across the board that just shows the impact that well-maintained facilities have both on staff and staff retention uh, for students. And to your point there creating a learning environment, um, uh, the best learning environment possible for students. And uh, those are just things that, again, going back to the pride component of it, that that's the cherry on top. You know, you're doing this for a reason, not just because this is mandated. It's, you know, it's creating an environment for staff, faculty, and students to, you know, be their best. And I think that's something that can't be lost there. I had a chance to meet with protein back in the early 2000s. They were the first to come out with backpack vacuums. And I met with the um, salespeople. I said, what are you guys selling? And they said, we're selling vacuums. I said, no, you're not. You're selling health. You're selling indoor air quality. You're extending the life of surfaces. And it's the same thing with a maintenance system. You're not selling software. You're selling a tool to let them achieve those goals. And when you get a superintendent or a college president or a maintenance director to acknowledge and accept that, that's all it takes. It starts with them. Um, so I think, uh, Griff, I promise not to tell any inappropriate dad jokes. <laughs> you did commit to that, one. so here we go. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, what did the custodian say when he stepped out of the custodial supply room? Well, oh, I that? give it away. Supplies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, oh, hey, listen, man. I appreciate you letting me uh, ramble a little bit. Um, I plan to continue to do this. Uh, also, if I hope folks can attend the ISSA show in November in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay. There will be almost a thousand vendors there. And if you really want to see what's going on in the cleaning industry, that's the show to go to. And remember, what happens in Vegas will probably make the news. Yeah, that's very true. Well, Perry, before I let you get out of here, I do want to ask you one question. And uh, I end every interview with this question. So here we are. Uh, Who or what has had the biggest impact on you and your career? You know, that's a good question. I I want to say my wife, but then she's not in the room, so I don't have to talk about her. Because she's allowed me to to be a, a consultant for the past 45 years. But the first person who really influenced me was Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker is one of the most famous uh, management consultants ever. You know, efficiency is doing things right. Effective is doing the right things, that kind of stuff. And the way he motivated me is not what you expect. I went to a speech that he gave in Costa Mesa, and I raised my hand to ask a question. And he looked out at me, and there there had to be 200 people in the audience. He said, hey. People didn't come here to hear you. They came here to listen to me. And I went, whoa. And I walked out, but it changed my whole approach to how to be a consultant and offering people options and tools and resources. Um, And then, of course, I said I mentioned my wife. She's a communication major, and she's often sat down with me to say, hey, here's the best strategy to use when you're meeting with a irate customer or you're meeting with a school board um and so those are the two and of course my mom but you know well you got to have multiple and that's uh that's always the fun of of asking that question is everyone has their own unique story and i could assure you you're the first who has mentioned that you walked out on uh on a speech exactly that you went through and uh (laughs) you walked out on it 
<laughs> but, uh, well, hey, Ferry, uh, I'm going to have in the show notes where folks can find you on LinkedIn, your uh, email address, and what you guys are doing at uh, MC2. But Super. Um, again, I certainly appreciate you coming on. And uh, until next time, be good. Hey, isn't this podcast 100? Say that. I did, you know what? I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. You are number 100. So this is special. I don't know if there's yes, a, blue, a balloons emoji that we could have that go through the speakers on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, but whatever we could do to figure that out, I'll make it special. <laughs> hey, sounds good. Hey, Griff, thanks again. Keep it clean and safe out there. All right. You as well, Terry. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes and follow us on LinkedIn for more facilities management content.